Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. Won't you join us as we praise the Lord with Joyful, the one who saves. You are the one who takes all our 
Amen. You may all be seated. All right. My name is Travis Burks. I'm the youth and worship director here at Liberty Lake Church. Uh, for those who are online and visiting, welcome, welcome. Uh, Going to get through announcements here. So youth group tonight uh, meets here uh, from 5.30 to 7 o'clock, sometimes a little over. We have a grand old time talking, playing games, and uh, sometimes even taking little trips to McDonald's, which is a lot of fun. Um, we also have an annual meeting today, which is immediately after uh, the final song and service. Uh, the meeting will be held here in the sanctuary, so if uh, you're a member, please hang out. Uh, there's a spaghetti lunch after uh, the vote up in the Family Life Center. Everyone is welcome at the lunch. If you aren't a member, uh, just head up to the FLC after service. Uh, this Saturday, we have men's breakfast. Uh, that's December 12th at 8 a.m. Uh, if you're available to cook slash serve, please arrive at 7.30, and uh, you'll get some extra bacon bits if you arrive early as well. Uh, also that Saturday, we have a ladies' Christmas sing, right? Yes, us ladies, we're going to get together and sing a bunch of Christmas songs and talk about Christmas and have fun. Uh, as it says, bring a heart of joy and optional, bring socks. We're going to be <laughs> giving these to Blessings Under the Bridge. The socks are optional. The heart of joy is not. Make sure you bring that. <laughs> uh, Angel Tree. Um, gifts need to be returned to the church by next Sunday. So that's December 13th, uh, next Sunday. Also, we have a Christmas Eve service coming up. Uh, that's December 24th, obviously, at uh, 4 p.m. So uh, please note that we'll just have one service this year. Um, if you have any questions concerning that, please feel free to reach out to any of the elders um, or Julie or myself. Um, all right. I would like to invite uh, Elise and Aaron Brown and family uh, to do the Advent. microphone we, we need it for the people online yeah. so <laughs> good morning so we're the Browns so Aaron if you don't know us Elise Adelaide and Shelby um, <laughs> so today we're gonna light the candle that symbolizes God's love for all who all who follow him and Adelaide's gonna tell us what we do special around Christmas we build gingerbread houses so that's kind of our tradition. So we're going to read 1 John 4, uh, 7 through 10. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent us his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Thanks, guys. So this next song uh, is called He Shall Reign Forevermore uh, by Chris Tomlin. And it's actually uh, was originally composed in a poem by Christina Rossetti in uh, 1872 under the title A Christmas Carol. But uh, somebody else really liked that title, so they ran with it. Um, 
And so I wanted to read you guys that poem, and then we'll jump into the song. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him, whom cherubim worship day and night. Wrapped up in rags and a manger full of hay. Enough for him, whom angels fall before. The ox and sheep and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But his mother only. In her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet, what can I give him? Give my heart. Won't you stand for me? Evermore, forevermore. 
Unto us a child is born, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forevermore, forevermore. Sacrificed your life so I could live. Thank you for the cross that you have carried. Thank you for your blood that was shed. You took the weight of sin upon your shoulders. You sacrificed your life so I could live. Now nothing is holding me back from you, Redeemer of my soul now nothing can hold me back from you your love will never let me go thank you for your death and i uh-huh. 
of your love day in and day out. May it motivate us to pursue your face each and every day. Your face do we seek, um, especially in this time of giving and remembrance of you coming into this world in flesh to be a servant and to die for us. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you in this place again this week. A couple of little items of business uh, before we get underway. Uh, the sermon will lead us right into the Lord's Supper. If you did not get one of these coming in, I encourage you to either have someone bring you one or go get one. We'll, we won't be coming forward this morning, so you'll need this uh, once we get started with that. So just a reminder of that. Also, um, if you're a note taker and you have the outline, um, I managed to transpose uh, the John text, which is uh, adjacent to Jesus, should be John 10, 14 through 18, not John 14. <laughs> I saw 14 and somehow wrote it twice. Uh, fortunately, um, the correct text should show up on the screen, so we'll see how that plays out. We're going to continue uh, our journey through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and uh, we left the disciples and Jesus uh, the last time we were looking at the text in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to pick up with them there this morning in John chapter 14, or John Mark chapter 14, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 41. And he, which is Jesus, came the third time and said to them, the disciples, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. In uh, my journey in being taught to uh, preach and the way to preach and the things to look for in preparation, the encouragement was always follow the action. And in this particular text, all of the gospel writers record this event, and it's loaded with action. Lots of things are happening. In fact, from this point forward, pretty much the whole rest of the record of Jesus' life that we have in the Scriptures is all about the action. And so we have this taking place. There's an incredible number of things happening here in a very short period of time. This whole event probably lasted 15 or 20 minutes, maybe a little longer, but there's a plethora of things that are going on here. So to take it apart, I decided we'd kind of look at it like you would take apart a, a movie or a portion of a movie. And so we have this drama going on. We have the actors. Now, clearly in this text, as in all of the scriptures, Jesus is the leading man. But I put him at the end of the list intentionally because we need to see how everyone else is acting and it plays off of the significance of who Jesus is. So we have Judas here. Judas, as we see in the text, is one of the twelve. He's one of the guys that Jesus chose to be with him throughout his ministry. He was with him for the better part of three years, doing a variety of things, going in a variety of places, and seeing firsthand the things that Jesus did and hearing firsthand the things that Jesus said. We're also told in the text that Judas is the betrayer. And in all of the gospel lists of the disciples, Judas is always at the end, and it always alludes to the fact that he was the one who would betray Jesus. And indeed, that's what he's about to do. It's interesting that at the Last Supper, when Jesus announces that one of those at the table would betray him, they go around successively and say, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Judas is the only one who says, Rabbi, it's not me, is it? And he addresses Jesus only as Rabbi, not as Lord. John tells us in his gospel that Judas was the treasurer 
he kept the money for the disciples to supply their physical needs, but he also says, and by the way, he was a thief. He helped himself to the money when it was convenient. Jesus, in John's Gospel, says that Judas is a devil. He says, Have not I chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And we also know that at the Last Supper, Jesus pronounced a curse on Judas. Now, if I were to pronounce a curse on somebody, it would have no significance whatsoever. Um, In fact, I probably would curse somebody for the wrong reason. But when God's chosen Messiah pronounces a curse, that's not a good thing. Uh, He says, you know, the Son of Man is going to go as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom that comes about. It would be better for him if he was never born. It isn't just, oh, he had a little setback here, or oh, he made a mistake. It would be better if he never existed, ever. And in John, the high priestly prayer in John 17 of Jesus records Jesus praying for the disciples, but not for Judas. He says, I've kept them all except for the son of perdition or the son of destruction. And that construction in the language is that Judas belongs to destruction. In this context, Judas has made this arrangement, this sign, to delineate specifically the person who the soldiers and the others are to grab. And it isn't so much that they didn't know who Jesus was or wouldn't recognize him, but Judas wanted to ensure that they got the right guy so that he would get paid his 30 pieces of silver which we noted a few sermons back, is the price to redeem a slave. That's all Judas could see that Jesus was worth, was 30 pieces of silver. In this process, the ESV and many of the translations simply have the word rabbi once, but Judas actually comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now, the significance of that is lost on us because we don't really think about that much when we read those words. But there's about 15 times in all of Scripture where names are repeated twice. And they're always in a context of a significant relationship. Uh, An example would be uh, David when his son Absalom, even though he rebelled against him and tried to take the kingdom away, David loved him dearly. And when he was killed, we find David saying, Absalom, Absalom, oh, my son Absalom, it would be better if I would have died instead of you. That's how much he loved him. We see Jesus on more than one occasion repeating people's names. 
in the, in the case of Jesus being at Lazarus' house with Mary and Martha, Martha's doing all the work, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet listening, and Martha gets upset and says, Lord, you know, don't you care that I'm overworking myself? Of course, she doesn't say it that way. She makes it look like I'm the good one, and Mary's not. And Jesus addresses her and says, Martha, Martha, you know, there's many things to worry about, but that's not one of them. Mary's doing the better thing. In Luke chapter 22, we have Jesus addressing the disciples, but in catching their attention, he speaks to Peter in Peter's given name of Simon. And he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have what we might think of as simply a southern version, but Satan wishes to have all y'all. Satan has demanded to have all of you disciples to sift you like wheat. But then he changes and he looks directly at Peter and he says, but Peter, I have prayed for you so that when you are restored, when you repent, you will be able to encourage your brothers. So he changes from all y'all to just Peter. But he's getting Peter's attention by addressing them all, saying, you know, this... This that's transpiring is not just a simple transaction of people who don't like me and they're going to arrest me and take me away. There's more involved here, and we're going to see more of that as we go along. So we have Judas coming up, rabbi, rabbi, affectionately approaching Jesus and then giving him what we would classify as the ultimate kiss of death to call everyone's attention to Jesus, this signal. And this kiss, now we kind of chafe at the idea of two guys kissing. But in Middle Eastern culture, even to this day, it's common to greet someone that you are close to with a kiss. It's not a sexual, long-involved process, but it's a demonstration of intimacy. And Judas is doing that, but in the language of the Greek, the, the word for to kiss, the verb, is intensified, which means he more than just gave him a peck on the cheek, which would be the normal greeting. He embraces him, and it's a, it's a protracted kiss. And I wrestled with that in thinking about the text, is why would Judas do that? He, he really wasn't that close to Jesus, other than being with the rest of the disciples. We don't find other cases in the, the scriptures where he had intimate contact with Jesus, and it occurred to me that in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, when Jesus announces that one of you here that's eating with me will betray me, and the disciples begin to question and you know, murmur about how's that going to play out, and who is it, Jesus says it's the one who... I give this morsel to, who's dipping into the food with me. And apparently Judas 
at the supper was sitting to the left of Jesus because we're told that John was sitting to his right and kind of leaning against him because John and Jesus were very close. And so Jesus dips in this morsel of bread and he gives it to Judas. And then John records that at that moment, Satan entered into Judas. And so Judas is acting of his own volition, his own will, his own desire to make money off of this capture of Jesus. But there's also an element of which he's influenced by the devil himself. To what degree, it's difficult to say, but clearly there is that happening. There's this battle, once again, between Satan and Jesus. And as we know, Satan had lost the battle before when he met with Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him for 40 days, trying to get him to give in to Satan's wiles. Jesus repeatedly quoted scripture, repeatedly held his ground, knowing who he was and why he was there. So, at this encounter, we have Jesus being embraced and kissed by Judas, but he's looking into the eyes of Satan. And we're going to see a little more of that as we move along. Next we have, in the actors group, the crowd. The, the background people, the, those that are coming. And we don't know for sure how big the crowd was. Uh, John says that Jesus uh, saw this crowd coming and that Judas had been given permission by the religious leaders to get what the English, New English, or English Standard Version says, and many of them say, a band of soldiers or a group of soldiers. Uh, different words are used. Um, but the Antonio Fortress was the Roman uh, guard post in Jerusalem, and it was immediately adjacent to the temple area. And so it's likely there was quite a few soldiers there because during the Passover time, which is where we are in this time frame of Jesus' life in this particular year, thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And there was always the potential for things to get out of hand. And so soldiers from the Roman forces were brought in, usually extra soldiers, just in case somebody got carried away. The Greek word that's used for the band of soldiers is a, a cohort, which could have been a thousand soldiers. Now, whether a thousand soldiers showed up with Jesus or with Judas to arrest Jesus, probably not, but it's certainly more than a handful. There could have been a hundred or several hundred people in this crowd. Because we have not only the Roman soldiers, we have uh, 
some of the uh, temple officers, which are those that keep order in the temple itself. Uh, the Roman soldiers were not allowed to go in there because they were Gentiles, but these were Jewish temple officers. There were a crowd of those in, in the midst of these. And then Luke also records that some of the chief priests and elders were also present, as well as Jesus' disciples and not sure how many others. Matthew records that the crowd was large which is a significant word. It's not just a crowd. It's a large crowd. So it's a bunch plus a bunch. Jesus, in announcing that this crowd is coming to get him, as we saw in our text in chapter 14 and verse 41, he calls them sinners. And they're with Judas. They've been sent by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're armed. And the significance of the Roman soldiers potentially is if Jesus resisted and or his disciples resisted, the Roman soldiers had the legal right to kill them. And it's possible that the religious leaders were hoping maybe that would happen. If the Romans killed him off, then he'd be gone, and it'd be out of their hands that they had anything to do with it at all. It wouldn't look like they had premeditated all of this stuff. In the midst of the group, of course, we have Peter. and. As we saw a few weeks ago, uh, Peter, along with the other disciples, had bragged about the fact that they would stand up for Jesus no matter what it meant after Jesus had told them in no uncertain terms, you will all deny me or forsake me. You will all leave. You will scatter. And Peter said, well, you know, these guys, they might run off, but not me. Oh, boy, I'm with you. Well, then, of course, they go to the garden to pray, and they all fall asleep. <laughs> and Jesus addresses Peter, but, of course, they all feel the brunt of it. You know, Peter, can't you stay awake for an hour? You know, you're going to stand up and die for me, but you can't stay awake for an hour and pray? And so, potentially, in this circumstance where Peter, which we're told by John, pulls out his sword, he's going to make up for being caught asleep. Uh, the other gospel writers don't name Peter, and there's a significant reason for that. Their accounts were written while Peter and the servant, who John tells us his name was Malchus, were still alive. And could there could potentially be charges pressed. So the other writers just say, somebody pulled out a sword, and somebody whacked the guy. John, he writes several years later, could have been as much as 30 years later after the event. So he can name names because there's nothing, no, nothing can happen to him now. So he doesn't mind throwing Peter under the bus. He says, oh, by the way, Peter 
pulls out his sword, and Peter chops off the servant's ear, and by the way, the servant's name is Malchus. So there's specific people here. It isn't just, oh, somebody did something to someone. And so Peter gets carried away like Peter's really good at doing and takes a swing at the guy, and we don't know which direction he was swinging, and we're not even certain the size of the sword. It suggests it wasn't large, but potentially he might have been trying to take the guy's head off, and maybe the guy ducked and it just, you know, got his ear instead. I don't know if you've ever hurt your ear before, but our ears are pretty sensitive. There's a lot of nerves in there, and uh, that wouldn't have felt good. And of course, Jesus reprimands Peter and says, look, you want to play with swords, that's how you're going to die. I mean, think about it, Peter. There's all these soldiers that are trained to use swords, and you got your sword, which probably isn't very big, and it's not going to work out too good. Luke tells us that Jesus immediately touches the guy's ear and heals him. Now, one of the commentators I read suggested that Jesus went so far as to reach down and pick up the guy's ear and stick it back on his head, but Jesus didn't need his ear to restore his ear. Jesus, the way I read it, just touched him and his ear was good. Now, think about Malchus for a minute. We're not sure why Malchus was there. He's the servant of the high priest. Now, we're not told the high priest was there, but we're told that several of the chief priests were there. But maybe the high priest was there, and maybe the servant was there as a bodyguard to the high priest, or maybe he just was sent along by the high priest once again to ensure that they actually get Jesus and they actually bring him back. But regardless of that, Here's this servant there doing his servant duty, and boom, his ear's gone. And lots of nerves, lots of blood vessels, lots of blood. And then within a very brief period of time, it's all gone. It stopped. No more pain, no more blood. Whoa, my ear's back. That had to have had some effect on him. Now, the scriptures don't tell us anything about Malchus or what happened to him or anything else for that matter. But if you put yourself in his shoes, that would make you stop and think for a minute. Is Jesus really this horrific criminal that we've been sent out to arrest and haul back to trial? And then in the crowd, of course, we have the rest of the disciples. And, of course, in fulfillment of Jesus' word, which was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, verse 50 of Mark chapter 14 tells us, and they all left him and fled. Now, we know that when Jesus told them that they were going to do that, they first of all didn't believe Jesus, which second of all means they didn't believe the scriptures. Because Jesus quoted the scriptures and says, this is what, the scriptures say, 
This is what's written. And the significance of what's written is for everyone, for all time, is that first of all, it's the spoken word of God. And so clearly the disciples are questioning not only Jesus' word, but they're questioning God's word, which has stood the test of time and still does. But they fulfilled God's word in spite of their grandiose claims that they would not. They all left him in flight. And then we have this interesting two verses about this young man. Mark is the only gospel writer that records this, and we're told very little about it. But the interesting way things played out historically is, as best we can tell, Mark was the first gospel written. And the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, and of course John to some degree, not so much because he wrote so much later in a different way, but Matthew and Luke certainly utilized Mark's information to put together their record of the events. And they chose to leave this out. didn't seem of significance to them. So why is it in Mark? Well, the best explanation seems to be that it's here in Mark because the young man was Mark. And he wants to verify that he saw what was happening. He was there. Now, the way that it might have played out, this isn't for sure, but how did he end up there? Well, the potential is that the house in which the Last Supper took place was Mark's house. We know from Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that Mark's family lived in Jerusalem. And at that time in Acts chapter 12, Peter has been arrested and put in jail. And they are meeting at Mark's house for a prayer meeting to pray for Peter to get released from jail. Well, as you know, the angel comes, gets Peter out of jail. They don't touch a thing. They walk right out. All the doors open. All the doors close. Soldiers are sitting there. They don't see a thing. And Peter goes out, goes to Mark's house, bangs on the door. Servant girl comes and he says, hey, it's Peter. She's so excited that the prayers have been answered. She runs to tell everybody else in the house, your prayers have been answered. Peter's outside and they're like, no, you're crazy. You're, you're dreaming. It couldn't be. <laughs> they, they didn't believe their own prayers. But all this was at Mark's house. Now, so it's possible that the Last Supper was at Mark's house. Jesus and the disciples leave there to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas and the soldiers and all the rest of them come there to arrest Jesus at the house. They don't find him. Well, in all the hoopla that's going on with this crowd, Mark is in his pajamas, potentially. That's the, the significance of the garment, or whatever it is, isn't what it was. But what it's made out of, it's made out of linen, which is expensive. It has to be imported, which again suggests it's Mark's family. They had a means, they were wealthy, 
and probably had nice pajamas. And he probably didn't follow the disciples when they first left because at the time of year in which they were out in the garden of Gethsemane, it wasn't warm. And so he would have been freezing if he'd have been out there a long time. So it's the potential that this group came to arrest Jesus. He's not at the house, so they go to the garden next because Judas knew that place. We're told that more than once in the different renditions of this event. Judas knew where the garden was. He knew that Jesus went there. So when they're all going away, Mark's like, well, I want to go see what's going on. So he runs outside in his pajamas and follows them. Well, then when all the things start happening and all the disciples run off, Mark doesn't know what to do, and here he is. And so since all the disciples got away, somebody grabs him. And somehow he wiggles and jiggles and leaves his pajamas behind and off he goes. That's all we know. We're not told a lot. So you, we can speculate within reason. We can't get too crazy here. I read some commentators who tried to suggest that uh, the linen cloth was a foreshadowing of the same linen that Jesus was wrapped in when he was died. Others were, well, nakedness suggests, you know, your exposure of your sin, and maybe there's all that in there, but you have to put a lot in there to make that come out, and I'm, I can't quite do that. Maybe somebody else can. The point of it is, it suggests that Mark is saying, I was there without saying, by the way, it was me. <laughs> How many people want to say, oh, I got caught outside naked and had to run away? <laughs> but despite all that, we come to Jesus. And in order to see what's happening with Jesus better, uh, we're going to turn to John 18 and take a look at John's record of what's going on here. John chapter 18, uh, Jesus has just completed John 17, which is his, we call it high priestly prayer, someone call it the actual Lord's Prayer. John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So we see Jesus. He sees what's happening. He knows the outcome. And he steps forward. And all of the things that are transpiring, we notice uh, Matthew mentions it twice. Uh, Mark mentions it, and John mentions it here, that it's all about fulfillment. It's to fulfill what was predicted would happen to Jesus, what would happen to the disciples what would ultimately happen to those who believe in Jesus and what he came to do. But we have this incident here that John spells out very specifically that the other writers don't include. Uh, Jesus moving forward and addressing those that are coming. Who are you looking for? Well, they have to tell him. It's a legal requirement. It's like if someone is being subpoenaed to court for something, you have to get an official summons. Somebody has to give it to you. You don't just, they don't just call you on the phone or send you an email and say, oh, by the way, we want you to come. It has to be official. So it's official. They declare, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. We're not looking for any Jesus. We're not looking for anyone. And the English doesn't do justice to Jesus' response. The English says, Jesus says, well, it's me, or I am he. I'm the guy. Literally what Jesus says is, in Greek, it's two words, ego, eimi. And both of those words mean the same thing. They both mean, I am. So Jesus responds with, I am, I am. The interesting part of that is Moses, when he is in the wilderness, after having tried to take matters into his own hands in Egypt, uh, is put out to pasture with the sheep, and God meets him there at the burning bush. And Moses sees this bush that's on fire. It's burning, but it doesn't burn up. So he goes over to see what's going on. And God calls to him and says, take off your shoes because the ground you're on is holy ground. And tells him, look, I am commissioning you. Go back to Egypt and do it my way, not your way. And take my people out of Egypt. Well, Moses, you know, says, well, I can't do that and blah, blah. But he says, well, if I'm going to go, I need to tell the people who sent me. Because they're going to say, well, why are you here? You're just making this up. And the name that God gives to Moses to tell the people in Egypt that are in captivity, have been for 400 years, is the same thing that Jesus says. Tell them that I am sent you. 
Jesus uses this name earlier in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8, when he's in this debate with the religious leaders, and they're trying to say, you know, you're demon-possessed, and you're crazy, and we should be rid of you. And Jesus, in the discussion, brings up Abraham. He said, if you, who you claim to be children of Abraham, if you were, you would know me because you would know my father who sent me because my father was Abraham's God. And they said, well, we don't know who you are, but we know Abraham. And Jesus said, well, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say I was. He said, I am. I am eternal. And I am here as the eternal one sent by my Father. And that's what he's telling these people here. And the force of him saying, I am, this whole group of people, however many they were, even if it was only 20 people, they all fall down on the ground. We're talking hardened trained Roman soldiers, we're talking temple officers who are used to controlling crowds, uh, some of the chief priests and others, they fall down. Now Jesus could have done a lot of things at that moment, but nothing is recorded that he says or does, so apparently they get up and kind of put themselves back in order, and then Jesus says, okay, so who are you looking for? <laughs> well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Well, okay, I, I'm the guy. I am. He says it again, but with less force, apparently, because they still stay standing. And Jesus says, well, if that's the case, take me and let these other guys go. And John says, well, that's another fulfillment of what Jesus had just prayed for in John chapter 17, just a very brief period of time before this takes place. And so they do let him go. They do let the others go. But in this process, the other thing that Jesus does, John doesn't record it, but the others do. Jesus says, you know, Every day, especially this past week, I've been in the temple teaching openly. And you could have arrested me. But now is your hour, is what Luke says. He tells them. And now is the power of darkness. That's the other part about Judas being indwelt by Satan himself is the power of darkness is at work. It isn't just that it's dark outside. There is that. We all know that we do things at night that we might not do out in the open daylight. And others do as well. But Jesus also says in a couple of different ways I've come to this time to accomplish my Father's purpose. In John, he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to fulfill what's happening? 
point of all this is Jesus is not a victim here. If you turn back a little bit in John to chapter 10, which on your outline says John 14, it's supposed to be John 10. John 10, starting in verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' action here is intentional. Jesus' action is sacrificial, and his action is substitutionary. In the midst of this drama, as we do with all dramas that we see by whatever media format, there's a director. Throughout the Gospels, there's this element of essential activity. Um, Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, uh, he says, the things that are going to happen must take place. And that's a very powerful word in the Greek. It's an essential activity. There's no way that it's not going to happen. And again, we mentioned it earlier, but Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to go the way it was written of him. And again, the significance of that is that it was spoken first. It was spoken by God himself first, as we're told about the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It isn't somebody's wild imagination, as some dramas can be. This one is not. To see this better, we're going to turn to Titus chapter 1. We have Paul writing to Titus. And he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with or agrees with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now we have this knowledge of the truth. We have the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, God who cannot lie, promised before the ages began. 
Well, think about it for just a second here. Who did he promise it to before the ages began? There were no people yet. There was no space. There was no time. There was God. The events that transpire at Jesus' arrest, his trial, if you want to call it that, his murder, and then, of course, his resurrection and all the other things are more than just a story. We're looking back into the plan of God that's way beyond Judas or any of the other players. God promised between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have an intertrinitarian promise here of we're going to create and we're going to have to redeem. And we're going to do it like this. And each of us are going to participate in this. And this is how it's going to come about. And then we're going to have people go and tell other people that this is how it came about and how it's working and how it's going to be fulfilled. And that's how God accomplishes his purpose. He doesn't do it by swords. And he doesn't do it with an earthly kingdom and an earthly king. He does it with more power and more finesse than that. But he does it unlike anyone would imagine. No one would write this story this way to have Jesus arrested and killed. They would have him somehow be saved or save himself and conquer and set up the kingdom and it would be done and he would everybody would live happily ever after well we're going to live happily ever after those of us who trust in Christ but we're going to do it God's way because that's what God promised and God cannot lie his promise will be fulfilled Paul in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says essentially the same thing. God set all this up before he even started creation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, same thing. Actually, all of Ephesians chapter 1 is a huge sentence, the longest one in Scripture of everything that God has set up and is doing and will ultimately do to accomplish His purpose of saving His people. Salvation through Jesus isn't plan B. It isn't that, oh, if everything would have worked out, we would all be living in the Garden of Eden. No, that was God's plan was what God's plan was. As mysterious and as hard to grasp as it is, it's God's plan. Otherwise, we have to back up and say, God, you messed up. 
and you didn't do it right. And we can't do that unless we simply don't want to believe it. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul in writing to the church at Corinth. Um, I'm kind of jumping into the middle of a thought here, but he is explaining his ministry. And the, the essence of his ministry is, as we know, he's a preacher. Verse 17 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, that is, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These events are happening to accomplish this huge purpose of God to bring people into a right relationship with him, and he's doing it all by means of Jesus. And just in case it isn't clear enough, if you go back to Isaiah 53, which is spelling out exactly what would take place to Jesus, I'm not going to read all of Isaiah 53, you can do that, but there's verse 10 and 11 is very specific, that what took place with Jesus was essential. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Everything that happened to Jesus was for the purpose of God displaying his righteousness, his redemption of his people, and bringing them into relationship with him in the best way that he could. He couldn't do better. Many people say, well, it's not fair, or he should have done it different. What we should say is, why me? I don't deserve it. I know what I deserve. But God 
in his infinite wisdom, did it his way, and we need to follow suit. Along those lines, we're going to move on toward our communion time, so I would encourage you to prepare yourself that way in thinking about what we've just discussed and seen, and to help us think about what's taking place with communion. Uh, We're going to take a look at a text in John 6 briefly, and then we'll partake of our communion together. John chapter 6, we have the event having just taken place. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The Jews are excited about Jesus. The people come and they're trying to mob him and they want to force him to be king. And he says, well, you you don't really want me to be king like a king. You want me because I can make bread go far. And I can make fish go far. I can feed you. I mean, what better way, what kind of king, you know, guy that can feed us? That's awesome. Jesus says, the bread you need is not from the the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish or whatever I could do. It wasn't even the manna that came in the Old Testament to your forefathers. Jesus, in verse 35, says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, 
and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus was very adept at setting people's uh, premeditated ideas on their ear. And they start to think he's talking about cannibalism here. How's he going to give us his flesh? And how are we going to drink his blood? That's gross. We can't do that. In fact, later in this chapter, a whole host of his followers stop following him because they're like, we don't get this. This is, this is way more than we bargained. The point Jesus is making is physical food and spiritual food do the same thing. They feed you. Physical food feeds you, sustains you, it becomes a part of you. Spiritual food, which he's talking about, his flesh and his blood, feed our souls and sustain our souls. That's the essence of eternal life. We need to be eternally sustained. And we can't do it on our own. We don't do it on our own. We need Jesus to do that. And that's the significance of Jesus coming. Set aside everything that he had in glory. Came and lived here. Went through all the things that we go through, yet without sin, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law's requirements, and then he was put in the place of curse to take the curse for all of his people for all time so that no one has to take the curse that belongs to him, that is, of his sheep. So when we partake of the elements, we're remembering that we are united to Christ. And the only way we can have a relationship with God is united to Christ. No one has ever loved God that doesn't love Christ. They can say whatever they want to say. But Jesus said, unless you love me the way I love you, then you don't really love God and you don't even know him. Using the significant words of 1 Corinthians 11 from the Apostle Paul, which we typically do with communion. In coming to this time of partaking of the elements, I want to pray briefly and give us just a few minutes to think about our own individual relationships to God in Jesus and about the things that Jesus particularly intentionally did to do what he did for our sakes. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your plan put in place before you even created and brought about in space and in time with real people that were really sinners, that really chose to disobey you and really chose to try to usurp your authority and create their own little kingdoms and live their own little lives apart from you. And yet you, even from the very first sin, sought your people 
you looked for Adam and Eve in the garden and you came to them and you resolved the conflict and you reconciled the relationship with them. And you've continued to do that all throughout history. And you're even doing that today. You're calling out to your people and saying, come to me, feed on me, receive from me what you cannot get anywhere else. You call us to come before you, recognizing what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and the promise of Jesus' return to join us all together in an eternal celebration of your magnificent plan and worship you for your magnificent character and your glory and praise you that you deserve so much. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, recording the words of Jesus uh, at the Last Supper. He says, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let us uh, partake together in remembrance of Jesus giving himself in our place. And continuing on, Paul writes, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's join together and partake. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your plan. We thank you for your joining all the forces of nature and all of the people that you have incorporated to accomplish your purpose, to bring about salvation for your people, and that you have covenanted to make it happen, and you are the covenant keeper. You have taken away our hearts of stone, our unfeeling, uncaring way of life, and you have transformed us and made us new. We are a new creation in Christ. We have a new heart. We have a new motivation. And we, because of your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, are free to love you and to worship you and to bring you the glory and praise that you deserve. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand and worship in our last song, Living Hope? Great a chasm that lay. 
the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night and through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my Jesus, yours is the victory. 
Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my so that we would never, ever have to. And uh, I pray you would just continually remind us of that because in this season that really feels like a whole lot of darkness, we need reminding um, with so many voices telling us otherwise that we're not worth it or that we can't make it or that we're unloved. You reach down into darkness and remind us that you do love us and that <laughs> you didn't die trash you died for children to adopt them through your spirit into your family forever and uh, yeah don't don't let us forget that father remember 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 family of god that he loves you thank you in jesus name